Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Collective Podcast. This is going to be episode 74 with New York Times best-selling author Daniel H. Wilson. Uh, we talk a lot about his personal insight on how being a father has influenced his work on a day-to-day basis, uh, his kind of his workflow, his transition he's made from graduating as originally as, as a roboticist into becoming a professional writer, and the exciting opportunity that he's been embarking on with creating uh, a weekly series for DC Comics. Uh, it's a really great episode. We, we talk a lot about you know the writing process and how he, he constructs a book and all these kind of great little details that I'm really interested in. I know you guys will enjoy it. Uh, today's podcast is also brought to you by our new sponsor, Audible.com. It's, a, it's an amazing service. I use it all the time. Um, I'm really into books, as you all know, and it's just another way while I'm working to consume a lot of content. Uh, you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thecollectivepodcast.com slash Audible. Uh, they have over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, uh, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Like again, if you don't know what Audible is, check it out. It's an amazing service. I uh, highly recommend it. Andrew and I use it. Everybody I know pretty much uses it. It's a great service. So check it out. This is going to be episode 74. Let's go. up dude how are you uh doing good yeah. yeah just uh you know it's gotten crappy in portland so things are back to normal <laughs> over <laughs> how so is the weather bad oh uh, no i mean it's just it's just sort of you know wet and dark <laughs> oh yeah the ch- the season's changing back right yeah. yeah i i i most people that live here like it better um when it's a little bit misty <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a moody town from what I've heard, and like I haven't been there particularly, but I've been close to that area, and um, yeah, really, some people love it though. Yeah, I'm I'm not geared for that. I, I need sunshine, like tons of it. Yeah, then this would be the wrong place to be. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask you, when did you end up moving up there? I've been here like ten years now. That's right. Okay, you, I remember you saying that at Comic Con when we were chatting. I think I asked you that same thing, and you like it up there, obviously, because now you have the family and everybody's kind of situated up there. Yep. Yeah. So you're not leaving. Nope. You're, you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck. Well, I already got in. I got in early. This oh. is piling on in Portland. Yeah, I've heard it's also like a very, um, it's like a really awesome town with the art and everything as well, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of um, creativity and stuff, like a good cultivated environment for creativity and stuff. Nike's <laughs> up there too, right? Yeah, Nike and Intel. Intel is up there as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool up there. I like the. I mean, for me to visit, it's cool because it has a ton of mood, and it's actually really good for shooting film too. I think not that area necessarily, but you get a lot of consistent light, so you can kind of shoot for a long time without having to do weird cuts. Yeah. Yeah, it's killer. But um, yeah, there's so much to talk about. Um, thank you for coming on. I know, I'm sure you're busy writing and doing all kinds of madness, taking care of the kids, I'm sure. So, <laughs> But um, it's interesting to make a living off of this kind of thing, like writing or illustration or um, it, they're not necessarily things that, you know, that we demand and require for life, but they're important, you know, to life themselves. And I think it's just, I find it interesting and I think it's really cool when people are successful at it because uh, it's not easy. 
No, entertaining other human beings is the is the last job that humans will ever have. It's the first job humans ever have. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like automation, everything can be done by a machine pretty much, uh, except actually entertaining other human beings because part of what's entertaining is that you're a person, you know, in the first place. It's like a prerequisite to some extent. Yeah. You know, like I'm not going to read Facebook if it's a bunch of news feeds about like – fictional machines or something or the cooked up by like by a robot it's like it actually has to be another person living their life in order for it to be interesting Um, sure why do you what is that you think psychologically what is that human beings are totally physiologically and psychologically geared to care about each other uh i mean mainly so we can work together in in order not to die but survival it's all that stuff's taken care of i feel like uh all that machinery is still at work and you can't turn it off and what human beings are interested in is other human beings, period. At the end of the day, we're narcissists <laughs> as a species. Yeah, it's very true. I think about that often with myself and my own intentions, and I find myself like kind of laughing at the fact of how narcissistic I am. And when I'm, even when I think that I'm not being, that's usually when you are the most, you know? <laughs> yeah, when you can't tell. Yeah, that's when you're blinded by it. But I don't think you should discount entertaining other people, you know, whether you do it via like, you know, whether you're an artist or whether you're a writer or a performer or whatever, I mean, it's a pretty noble pursuit because we're all just on this planet waiting to die, right? And <laughs> distract- That sounds amazing. <laughs> Distracting each other from that fact is like a pretty fucking important task, I think. Yes, of course. The inevitable, right? The distraction. But I guess it's all perception, right? You know, because, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just how you look at it. I mean, it is an inevitable fact that that occurs right i always find it to be a total mind fuck that we don't know what happens you know and nobody knows and it, and i and awesome. it, I, since i was a little kid i've always been like oh there's gonna be this mystery that we get that i get to solve at some point and it's guaranteed that i'm gonna know <laughs> <laughs> do you ever feel like as a kid because i used to hit these thoughts that you like you said there's this mystery that you get to solve do you ever feel that at certain points in your life that you've unsolved a mystery here something about yourself or something about the world, like a new perspective. Do you ever have those happen to you? Like a, maybe like a series of enlightenments or it's when you level up, when you, (laughs) when one minute you're Gandalf the gray and then the next minute you, (laughs) you voyage through time and space and you're Gandalf the white. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Something like that. You you know, know, I've had, uh, I've had situations where I'm in the situation again and i recognize that i've been there before you know like and i make a different decision because i've learned (laughs) yeah so there's definitely that but there's you know but life has some milestones you know i i call them like the moments when you when you call your mother right Mm. like uh when i finished my degree you know that was like one of those moments where it's like all right they can never take that away from me um like when robopocalypse became a bestseller and i was like holy shit like I have a, you know, that's when you call your mom and you go, okay, they can never take that away from me no matter how bad things go. (laughs) Sure, sure. Do you you feel that these things, these, these, um, like accomplishments, these goals, these things, do they, do they become you? Do they, do they change you? I mean, they obviously do. I guess it depends on how far they push you into change, right? And, Uh, you know, I remember when I was, uh, when I was still in grad school and, um, I a lot of my identity w- was wrapped up in being a scientist, you know, mm. and and part of you're, that your robotics, right? PhD yeah, I in robotics, robotics at, at Carnegie Mellon, okay. and uh, for a long time, and and I remember I, I had 
just published a book called How to Survive a Robot Uprising. It was my first book, and it was like a joke, you know? Yeah. But they let me write it and publish it because I had this background as a roboticist, and it sort of like made sense, you know? It's just a little shiny book. Um, but I was at a party, and a girl who was better looking than any girl who'd ever talked to me <laughs> was, was desperately interested in me, and only because I had written this book, right? And at the time, I was really offended by that. <laughs> I was like, that hmm. book isn't me, you know? Like, you sure. you're not interested in me. You're interested in this thing I made. I got to say, I have matured right out of that uh, <laughs> point of view. Sure. Like, if, if somebody's interested in me because of something I created, at this point, I consider, I consider myself and the stuff I make to be the same, you know? And I, and I think that's... The facets, right? Because my identity has sort of evolved away from being the scientist guy and now my identity is more wrapped up in the you know the stuff I make the stories I write I, so, yeah <laughs> I would be perfectly willing to go on a date with that girl now <laughs> well if I weren't married <laughs> yeah come on don't, don't get yourself in trouble <laughs> no I, I mean I think that's a really good point to bring up I often find myself being you have to be very cautious as an observer and I notice that um, even um, just celebrities for example um, I, I would, it'd be the, probably one of the weirdest, weirdest things. People think that they know you because they feel, if you're a really good actor especially, they feel like they've known you because you're so strong and so powerful and you're this person, but you're not that person. And to go through life with people thinking that they know who you are, but they only know like a, uh, a, like a, a balanced, a, a mirrored reflection of a, of, a, of a different version of yourself, basically. And that's what I'm talking about with fame. I find that fame, I'm always just curious about it because I know that it's easy to get swept up in it. It's easy for others to judge. And I just find it to be psychologically interesting, you know. And I think we talked a little bit about it when we had lunch at Comic-Con. We talked a little bit about, you know, the, the impact it had on you when you became, you know, this, it was a New York Times bestseller author, you know, that's a big deal. I'm, I'm a writer though, so I'm oh, not, writer. not dealing with the same thing that, uh, that actors are dealing with. I'm not famous. Sure. But well, I mean, there, there's guys like Stephen King, for example, yeah, who's, he's like a celebrity writer, you know. So that's not something I really have to deal with, but there is like a tendency to feel like you're hot shit sometimes. And then usually... I feel like if you if you feel like you're hot shit, then you need to just like stop and take a breath and realize <laughs> you're not hot shit. <laughs> like, yeah, be humbled by your. Are coming at a situation from a good place if you're coming at it thinking that you're like too good or or better than the people you're around or something like. I mean, that's just a terrible way to go through life, I think. And so, you know, no matter what happens, you always have to remember that. You know, we're all monkeys on a ball of dirt. Well, you sometimes you can't blame for people for falling into that pitfall because when everybody around you is saying you're you're fucking amazing and this and that and they're giving you praise, like uh, if you're not willing, if you're not able to kind of have good perspective, I think you can easily get caught in that yeah, loophole. You know, especially if you're in a job where everybody around you is is like you know perpetuating like that that mythology, like uh, and that's that's an actor thing. Sure, I have a friend here in Portland named David Guntioli, who's on a show called Grimm. And 
he's the he's the lead on this television show, and so when he's at work, I mean, a lot of people are concerned about you know his welfare, and he gets looked after really well, right? Because mm. he's, he's the man, you know. And he he was telling me the other day, he was like, yeah, there's this transition you go through when you're at work, you know, week after week, and everyone is like really just taking care of you, making sure you're taken care of, and you don't really have to lift a finger. And then he goes home to visit his mom or something, you know, and his mom is like, yeah, you know, the uh, the bologna's in the refrigerator, you know, make yourself a sandwich. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, I think that's why it's important to uh, have a family and have normal, have people you're around, you know, that. Yes. Well, they, hum- they humble like, you. They remind you that you're not the center of the universe, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I haven't really had to deal with that. I mean, there's some people that that appreciate the stuff I write and, and they'll write me emails or, or sometimes uh, people will, will, you know, like contact me or recognize me or whatever, but it's not anything like that. It's just really flattering. And then, you know, you go right back. I actually had a situation earlier this week where I got a phone call from one of my entertainment lawyer and she told me that a a really cool deal was like going down and I was so excited. I started to feel a little bit like hot shit. I was watching my, my son on the playground and, uh, he was, uh, I didn't see where he was at and I, and I looked, went around a corner and found that he had pooped. He's two. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, so now I'm going from having <laughs> clothes this really big deal to picking up human feces. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's life, right? Oh, you got to love it, man. That is life. And that's that's the funny part about being a parent, too, is, is, is and that's what's cool about it, too, in, in accepting the, the fact that, yeah, I got to go pick up poop now, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. I've had those moments in my career, too, where I'm like, yay, like, that was such an amazing breakthrough. And then I'm like, Ah, oh, my dog just threw up on like my jacket. All right, <laughs> or yeah. my my daughter needs help with homework or whatever. But I think, like you said it perfectly, as being a human, uh, I think it's it's part of. I mean, I don't know. I mean, not everybody needs a family or has to, but you really gain a, a different perspective. I think I really became uh, a man, obviously, when I became a dad and a husband, I really understood what it was to be selfless. It took some time, though, because I was a sing- <laughs> yeah. I was kind of like a single kid. I had a I had a brother, but he moved out. Really, he was seven years older than me, so he moved out. So was, I kind of ran the show for a while, and then I was on my own for a very long time. So yeah. I don't I don't so know taking care of other people. You know, it's like whether and it doesn't mean that you. I mean, having a family is great. Having kids is great, but. Like having friends is the same. I mean, are you looking out for other people? Are you like thinking about other people? That's and true. I don't know. That can be hard. And, and especially if you're in a, you know, I, I imagine for celebrities it's even harder, but I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like a narcissist thing. It just depends on how far it goes. But yeah, I'm just, you know, I always, I always find it to be, I'm really curious of this psychological shift in people's mind states when they become successful and, and why they, some some are able to maintain humi- humility and some are not and i you know there's so many different factors that play into it you know and it's just very interesting um but yeah i don't know but yeah congratulations on all that stuff that's got to be really interesting the day that these things kind of hit you after all this hard work i mean you kind of it seems like and i'm just guessing you are more focused on just robotics right and and studying and 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 working in that field did you think that you were going to shift gears and 
become a writer and that was going to be your thing? Was that kind of something from your childhood that you were going for? No, I mean, yeah, in my childhood, I, I read a lot of science fiction. And I always imagined that I'd be a scientist, though. I mean, that was my whole deal. Uh, even as a really little kid, I imagined myself in a, a lab coat. You know, that was me, <laughs> guy in a lab coat. It's rad. It's like, uh, but I, I did, I read like an absurd amount. I was always reading, like, I missed out on <laughs> like an entire childhood, basically, because I was always, always reading um, a book. I was just talking to my grandpa about this because my son is two and he's really into tractors. And when I, I grew up in Oklahoma and my grandfather had a farm and he had tractors everywhere and I never gave the slightest shit about tractors. <laughs> or uh, he had horses, he had cows, deer. I, oh, cool. So, uh, like uh, they had land, they had... Um, you could go fishing, you could go hunt, you know, all this stuff. And I would go to the farm and I would bring a backpack full of books and I would go outside and I would read a book all day. <laughs> and that was like, well, my little brother rode tractors. And yeah, like, you're super insular, huh? Yeah, and it was just like, it's just what I like to do. And, it, and sure. as it turns out, I, I feel like if you put enough miles on that odometer, you know, of whatever you're doing, I suppose I could have gotten really good at, you know, anything on a farm. Instead, I got really good at, reading and, and coincidentally writing, well, I won't say really good, but good enough to sell some books um, in science fiction. And so like, I don't know, I never really cared. I split the difference. I would study real science or I'd, or I'd do science fiction. As it turns out, like, I'm much better at reading and writing than I am at math. And, and doing math for me is really hard, which is sort of ironic because I've spent a, more than a decade studying really advanced statistics and machine learning. Huh. <laughs> Getting degrees in that and just never having it come natural and just always having to really, I felt like I was always working harder than the guy next to me, you know, or the girl next to me because a lot of people that end up in that field are just naturally really good at math. But what, what I'm really was good at in grad school was writing grant proposals and <laughs> technical <laughs> papers and, and anything that involved writing, you know, yeah. my three scores were so funny. I mean, like my math scores were like totally average. And my, all the other reading stuff was, you know, it was really clear, like what I should have been doing, but I never did get around to doing the right thing until, you know, I got really lucky toward the end of the degree and I had this idea for that book. And then from there I was able to keep going after, after how to survive a robot uprising. Um, and now it's been 10 years since I've gotten out of school, so I'm not going back to being a scientist. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you've managed to figure it out. I, I guess, I mean, you're saying it. I think, you know, being a human, being good at something, repetition is a key, I think. Uh, it's almost like what you should be doing is just, like, hiding in plain sight because it's probably some version of whatever you've been doing yes. all the time. <laughs> it's funny how that is too. Uh, and I, I don't know why that is. Like maybe it's a lack of confidence or maybe it's like there's so many different things that can shield you from the, the true self, you know, your, your true intention in life. But sometimes it's cool when you don't re recognize it and you just continue as long as it's not harmful towards yourself. But if you, if you continue on that path of like, you know, understanding another side of the world, then you can bring all that stuff to the table and that makes you yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, like if you ask most, if you tell somebody, Hey man, you don't know what you want to be doing, like a young person. And then you say, you don't know what you want to be doing, man. It's hiding in plain sight, man. <laughs> They're like, fuck off, man. That person's going to say, I fucking love playing Call of Duty. Like, you're telling me that's what I should do for a living? Yeah. And that's not the answer, right? But but the point is that there's 
it's some version of what you of what you've been do, spending all your time doing. You know, it's not just playing the video game. That's like the obvious answer. It's like, what is it about the game? Like, you know, what do you? What is the thing that you're really good at within the game? Is it cooperating with other people? Is it building maps? Is it, you know, I mean, what is it, right? And I think from there you can start to see yourself in what you do and what you enjoy doing, you know? Those core things, yeah. The core the, the core main things are the ingredients of what are pushing you. I, I totally agree. I think that's what made me realize it. I, I was fortunate enough to live in kind of a creative household, though, so it was encouraged and reinforced. So I just, you know, from an early age, it was like, yeah, you're going to be an artist or you can do whatever you want, but art, you're really talented, you know, and all that, those kind of words were thrown around a lot, you know. <laughs> which is cool you know like it's important to have that you know because if you don't have that foundation it's it's even harder my heart goes out to anybody that doesn't have that you know, i kind of had somewhere in the middle and i like nobody was really telling me anything really they just i never fucked up at school so nobody ever really said <laughs> nobody ever told me to yeah brothers and sisters right i have a little brother yeah but it's a little brother yeah. Okay. But what I kind of, I eventually sort of came out of my upbringing with like a, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about nobody really telling me anything and me having to sort of figure everything out. And, and I feel like that has been good for me. You know, I, I come in and I'm kind of competitive and I don't, I sort of have a little bit of a drive that I might not have if everybody just told me how great I was. Sure. Um, instead, nobody told me anything about me being good or bad really and I just sort of muddled through it and came out the other side sort of feeling like I earned something <laughs> or, totally. or, like, or that you really have to compete in order to succeed because there are lots of other people who want to do what you want to do. It's very um, American. <laughs> Competition <laughs> is incredibly big in America. Yeah, It's just like, you know, the sink or swim shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of true. It's definitely a component and yeah, maybe it is like a national or, you know, sort of component of uh, my upbringing or whatever. I never thought of it that way, but... Um, I think it is, though. You know, if you look at other countries, I've only been to a couple other ones, but... And there's, you know, every other country has something beautiful to them, whether they're more chill mm-hmm. or, they're, or they're more, like, in, into living life rather than, like, fighting, you know, mm-hmm. like fighting for life. But I find the competitive nature. I'm proud of it in America. It's it's destructive in certain cases, but I, you know, I embrace it. I'm the same way though. I like I like I like having others out there to be competitive with. You know, like I appreciate that. Like the better the the better the people out there, the better I'll yeah, be. Sharpen you know? yourself against other people. Yeah, exactly. Um, iron part of iron. Also, part of what happens in graduate school with the competition is that you don't study exactly what somebody else is studying you know Mm. because that's just that is really destructive i mean just to try to do exactly what someone else is doing only better that means you destroy the other person or they're gonna destroy you because you (laughs) can't both publish the same paper unless you're collaborating right Mm. so what you end up the competition the competitive drive in graduate school if if you're studying science anyway because that's all i can speak to is you end up specializing um, and you end up becoming a world expert in whatever it is you specialize in. And it's easy to become a world expert. You just choose something so esoteric that there's nobody else doing it, right? Sure, yeah. And suddenly, you know, by definition, you're the only one studying it. You're the world expert. And, and that's kind of where the com- competition pushes you, right? It pushes you 
to a level of, of specialization where you, you know, where you find your own footing as, as the best and the, and the, you know, the cutting edge of whatever it is. Um, and that's because it's all elbows. Everybody's jostling. <laughs> that's good though. I, I think that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you know, the opposite of the possibility of robots and their intelligence, but then, you know, hu- humility, humanity as a whole, as our survival is, is key on, um, conforming or not conforming, but like organizing and, and sticking together and, and helping one another in some way for survival. It's a selfish desire, but um, but being in those environments where you have other really smart, inquisitive, like curious people, people that are are kind of in, in a different thing, but you guys are all in the same boat where you know we have to write a paper, we have to write a book. <laughs> You know, is isn't that what it is? You have to be published, right? When you get your PhD, you have to do like a yeah. The, there's a dissertation. I can't remember the name of the. You spend a, a dissertation. Yeah, you spend a couple yeah. of years doing coursework, um, and then usually you get a master's degree after that. Mm. And then um, the rest of your time, which could be anywhere from like probably three to seven more years or something. No, jeez, I know. Yeah, events go well. Uh, the rest of it, you, yeah, your whole goal is to do research and then to write up the results of your research and get it published at a conference or in a journal, just someplace where you can share it with all your peers who are studying the same field. The internet or no? That, um, that stuff goes on the internet, but no, that doesn't count. It has, it has to be it like through like a legitimate pipeline from the old way, olden days. People are going to, it's going to change stuff. They're going to, potentially try to recreate your experiments and if you're full of shit you're gonna get (laughs) ripped (laughs) but there's a peer review process before anything appears in a journal so there are some journals that are like really hard to get into and it's a huge i mean nature or something like that if you get something published in that it's like go buy a bottle of champagne it's amazing you know it's a wonderful Mm, big accomplishment uh, yeah um if you get it, you know, into a workshop at like some a third-rate conference that's being held like in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, that's not quite as big of a deal, right? <laughs> it's gonna sort of be, it's gonna sort of show like people will understand sort of what caliber uh, or sort of where you're at with your research um, based on you know sort of where you're publishing and and who you're working with and stuff like that so i mean there's a definite pecking order in there and you're you know you're certainly competing and collaborating it's like a pissing contest it sounds like too i found that there's there's i mean it is but some people are just really fucking amazing and make (laughs) amazing breakthroughs and run really tight labs and get a lot of work done yeah and have a positive working environment i mean it totally yeah it just depends it's kind of funny because the People becoming professors are being promoted based on their research, not on their ability to manage other human beings. Mm, that's so, kind of weird. Sometimes, you know, you end up in a sucky situation uh, with kind of a crummy boss. You know, that happens often, I would say. But, yeah, most intellectual people. It was funny. I was watching this film called, uh, this documentary called Particle Fever. Have you watched that? No, I haven't. You should check it out. I think you'd really like it. It's about the Hadron Collider. Hadron mm-hmm. Collider, yeah, out in um, freak. Where's that? Uh, is it? How can I can I think of the? Is it in Geneva? Geneva, that's it. Yeah, and um, it's about you know like the theorists that are believing in supersymmetry, and then the possibility of they're trying to find that um, that missing particle or whatever. 
Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of the freaking name, the Higgs particle or something. But it's really interesting. These guys are, they've spent like 30 to 50 years theorizing this whole time. And my and I was watching a little bit with my wife and she's like, why do um, such smart people, they just don't give a shit about like what they look like and all that stuff. And I say, well, because for me, I just think they don't give a shit because they're literally like, that's just their vessel and they're focused on everything that pe- most people can't see. And that's what makes them like not care. And I just thought it was interesting because, you know, it, it that's what I really love about like Neil Tyson because he's he's incredibly smart, incredibly curious, but he's also a great people person from what it seems like. Same with Carl, you know, like Carl Sagan had that same like great quality and not everybody can have those things, you know. Some people are just really smart, but they're socially awkward, you know. Mm-hmm. And I imagine being in those positions, it's got to be really interesting, you know. And, and what I mentioned earlier about the pissing contest is I've noticed, too, like within science or any progression in humanity and stuff, sometimes the most brilliant shit is overlooked because people are like, it's either too far beyond everybody or they just don't get it or it's 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 it just doesn't click or it does, it's not delivered or properly, like, you know, put to to published properly or whatever you know so i don't know i mean what you mentioned kind of counters that so well no it makes more sense so it's true though if you don't work well with others then it can be really difficult to i mean look at nikola tesla right he's a classic example of somebody that's unable to communicate and therefore a you know ultimately a failure yeah you got crashed yeah you got smashed over i mean i wouldn't call him a failure but no 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 yeah he never got rich you know he never like he never had all the sort of signs of success that we think of and you know, and the, yeah, that's the way it goes. You got to be able to communicate, and that's what I found. You know, whenever I was in school, I was better at communicating than than at the uh, than at the science part. Yeah, communicative arts is a is it it literally is an art. You know, I think doing these like podcasts, for example, just figuring out a really good flow for people to hear and listen, and also extract all the good information that so it doesn't feel stiff. I, I was listening to some recent podcasts, and it was so annoying to me how these people were interviewing these people. It was so disingenuous and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like just cutting off like, man. And, and just that alone is, is, is a, is an art form and writing is, is a huge, for me it is, it's a, it's, it's a total challenge, you know? And it's cool that you spend a lot, a big part of your life reading because if you read really great books, you're going to understand you know, at least as a viewer, how a good book's written. You or know? shitty books. It's just as important to read lots of shitty books too. Yeah, Anthony tells me a lot about like he likes to watch a lot of shitty movies and maybe it's because I'm not as mature with that, but I don't like watching shitty movies because they just upset me. Like, <laughs> uh, and then I just get upset because like it takes a lot of effort to make a book. It takes a lot of effort to make a movie. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of time. And when I see something shitty, I'm just like, fuck off, man. Like, you just wasted so much energy and so much time. And, pro- and possibly, you know, it's mostly, it's subjective, you know, but it's, it's like, uh, it's just upsetting as all, you know, like, with all that time, you have everything. Shitty you know? movies. I just actually been, over the last few, like, last week, I just rewatched uh, Chud and um never seen that House of Nukem High like all these really shitty schlocky schlocky is the word schlocky uh, like 80s movies yeah yeah schlock fests <laughs> like yeah they're dumb and yeah they're like waste of time but I fucking am entertained by them and like I can totally see like structurally what they're trying to do sure and I can totally see 
why they made the concessions they made to budget, you know, but I, but you can also see like moments of brilliance and like where they get away with, uh, where they pull something off. That's pretty amazing considering the resources they have. Sure. I, I think everybody did, you know, sorry. Continue. I only get upset by movies when I feel like there's a huge potential and yeah. I'm like, it's like if you're watching the Olympics and somebody is like, like the gymnastics or whatever, and they're like executing a flawless routine, right? And then they fuck it up. And then that upsets me, right? Like um, I got a little upset by Prometheus, you know, because I felt like that's, this movie has like got a lot of potential. It's like coming along and then like some just totally stupid shit happens and it just takes me out of the moment and I'm like – you ruined it. Like you ruined it. I was, I was with you and it was going to be great. And you <laughs> it up, and then I'm mad. But yes. Things crummy from beginning to end. I don't care. It doesn't make it's me true. Mad. Okay. Yeah. To that, you know? Yeah. When something's not trying to be something that's not, then it's great. Like I rewatched clerks recently yeah. and it's one of those films that it, it doesn't care about a lot of things, but it just cares about like just funny character development and, 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 and showing the characters in an interesting way. And it's just honest in the, the way that it's, that's what it is. And, and for yeah, it, I wasn't exp- I wasn't like at at all there was no moment in that film where I was like what the hell man like fuck like did that seriously just happen cuz cuz you don't like he was smart enough to make something that he enjoyed he wrote it in a way where it was he, even if it wasn't good he would still have fun making it. Yeah. And you can feel that. I I feel that in that film. I and that was that's what makes me like it. Trailer Park Boys? Never seen that. I've never, I never even knew about it until recently. But I've <laughs> is it a show? It. Yeah, it's a Canadian television show, and also uh, a bunch of movies and things like that. But <laughs> it's like, uh, it's it's really entertaining, and and it's sort of similar to Clerks in a way that you feel like it's almost, you know, a large portion of it is like improv, but the characters have, but they've all got a solid character, like the characters are very well developed. Like everybody playing sort of knows who they are and wh- what role they play. Yeah. And so then you get sort of an infinite combination of really funny improv essentially, but really funny situations fall out of just these characters being who they are, you know, and they're all pretty abrasive. And so you can't help it, but to get some funny shit falling out of it. Sure. And I think that's what, what you're basically talking about is when things just, they're not trying to be something that they're not. And I guess, you know, like we can use Prometheus as an example. Some people really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Some people didn't. I felt like, yeah, I felt like um, I just, I wanted something amazing is all. And, and and I know there's so many people, I have a lot of friends that worked on that film. It was a very challenging film to make. Um, there was a lot of pressure writing on it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just when you pull, when you do something that has all this potential, but then it, it pulls you out of that experience with just kind of, bad decisions script wise or just story wise it's just yeah it becomes upsetting and i always think like didn't somebody read this and go what the fuck (laughs) you know but i guess maybe not i don't know you know like it's one thing i got to be cautious of is is judging people without knowing the whole thing and and that's been a lesson that i've been learning recently uh it's challenging you know like did you talk some shit about something that you shouldn't have (laughs) no it's just people talking shit and i'm and then and then i go like what the fuck are they talking shit about? Like, how dare they? And I start to think about it and go, oh, I've talked shit before, you know? And like, oh, no, it, people talk, people talk about the stuff I write. People, I talk about this, you know, the stuff. It's like a human thing. You can't sort of get away from it. And I'm not necessarily judging any 
individual, you know, but like with Prometheus, it's a fact that the characters made decisions that didn't make sense and that took yeah. a movie. Fact, yeah, yeah. I don't know who's responsible. I don't really care. I'm just saying that my experience of the movie, that's what happened. And I felt like everything else about the movie, the, the other 99% of the movie, was brilliant. And so having someone pee in the pristine swimming pool. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Is, uh, you know? How dare they pee in that Prometheus swimming pool? You fuck pool. up the whole pool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did you think of the egg and the flute thing <laughs> in the spaceship? He's all he's all playing like uh, with Jethro Tull and pushing like Easter eggs and shit. Well, I was like, get the fuck out of here with that. <laughs> Maybe as a visual person, I was just like, what the shit, man? But yeah, I felt like there was some visual. Well, you know, that's kind of a deal. Like sometimes I think visual. It's all the medium, right? I mean, so. So the visual necessities of a story can sometimes overwhelm the the basics of the story. You know, like sure. so. For instance, everybody's got to wear uh, helmets where you can see the actor's face. I mean, I get it, right? You spend a lot of money on actors; you want to see their faces. Yep. But like, you know, at the end of Prometheus, when the big ship is rolling and she's running straight, uh, straight, <laughs> making a right turn, that's the decision somebody or made left. because they thought, "How awesome will that look?" Right? Sure. Sure. Well, you, I mean, I feel That's like Michael Bay films. <laughs> you, if you're making, I mean, I think you can get away with that in Transformers. You know, I mean, it depends on what's going on. But like, you know, I mean, come on, somebody has to look at that and go, no, it makes no sense. Like, yeah, I think, and it can be so hard. I know this from my own work. The most glaring shit can be invisible to you, and it's just, yeah. it's just weird. And you know, part of it, I think, that's another reason why I like, you know. We were talking earlier about the transition between being, you know, maybe having lots of people like what you're doing and telling you that you're really great at what you're doing and then having and then like picking up shit, you know? Yes. Like, uh, it's really important to have somebody who will just tell you whenever what you're doing is dumb or cheesy. Oh, yeah. You need that. Make sense. And look, for me, that's my wife. She doesn't have, she doesn't give a fuck. She yeah, mine not too. Not my friends either. My friends could give a shit about, my friends don't even read anything. They're not even into science fiction, really. Like, <laughs> you know, they don't care. Like, I give them a copy of all my books. I name my characters after, you know, they don't get it. <laughs> They're whatever, <That's> like, dude. <laughs> it's important. I feel like it's important because if somebody is your fan, uh, that's like a, a checkbox that's like checked off and it really precludes a lot of, um, yeah, I don't know. It like precludes some stuff like in a relationship, right? Like objectivity. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on your def your, de your defined, uh, destination, you know, if your destination is to please your fans and to continue pleasing them, then I suppose that you would want to have about that. Your fans pleasing you. I'm talking about people not telling you whenever what you've done is just, silly or something you know? sure what, what i was saying is and maybe i was reading it wrong from you is that when 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 instead of going to a fan for their feedback you're going to somebody that is more of a an honest feedback that does care about you but doesn't care about those details and can give it to you straight i, I have the same thing with my wife too like <laughs> if she doesn't like something i go either i either i agree that she doesn't like it we agree to disagree and then i go and i just keep continuing on but um Lately, because I'm, I'm writing a, a couple of films right now and the way I'm building it out, but I'm constantly running things by her because she's very logic, logic based. She's opposite for me. I'm more like a weird dreamer guy. But I think, and, and Anthony as well, he's 
they're both my voices of reason. It's so important to have those people that you can trust that will give it to you straight. You said it perfectly. And that's how you keep yourself sharp, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's lots of examples where people get really big, they do amazing work, and then they get a divorce or they, yeah, stop, it's true. they stop writing with their, their writing partner or whatever. And then they're so big, nobody can tell them anything about they can no longer get any sort of objective feedback yeah and then suddenly they struggle you know and they do stuff like monumentally like you know monumental efforts that are like you know nobody is a hundred percent visionary right there's nobody out there that's gonna alone make the a dozen perfect films in a row or anything like that you know yeah that's a, that's you know that's that's a very rare thing. I don't think anybody's you ever pulled yourself, that out. You're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it, though. I've noticed that, too, when somebody's changed the formula that made them who they are and they try to continue and recreate it, unless they're very aware of themselves, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, being very humbled and aware of your own perspective of the world around you, constantly observing things and being acknowledgement of the things that are actually good for you and the things that are bad for you. If you're not really paying attention to those things, um, like you're fucked, you know, like if yeah. you're, if you, that's, that's if you're trying to run a marathon, right. Which is life is, yeah. Um, yeah. which is, and in being creative and being successful at it, you got to acknowledge those things that make you, you, you know, like whether it's picking up your two year old shit after hearing that, like that's part of it, you know, like, you know, that's part yeah. of, that's part of what it is. And yeah, I've noticed that too. That's a really common thing. That's interesting that you pointed that out. Cause that's an observation I was making recently too. Cause not only do I like to study these people's work, but I like to study who these people actually are. Cause that's curious. I'm curious about that because everybody has a story to tell. And that's, I don't know, you know, what makes brilliance? How does, some, how does somebody make something so amazing that it just stands the test of time? Like, I always bring up Alien because it's one of those films that just, I don't know, are you a fan of Alien? Shit, yeah. It's or, a, like the script, not? yeah, who's not, exactly. The script isn't, if you really break down the script, if it wasn't turned and moved and pushed into the way it is visually and, and the way it's put together as a film, if you, the script is actually a B level kind of script, not, not to say it's bad or anything. It's just not, yeah. it's not brilliant, you know? And that's another example of why it takes whole teams of people. Oh I mean, yeah. That's what I liked about, um, so, you know, Robopocalypse was, was bought by DreamWorks and yeah, let's talk uh, about that. It was in development. Well, it's still in development. It <laughs> always is. Time. They had, they own like fucking million properties over there. <laughs> They're like, but, we must own all properties and sit on them. Well, working, <laughs> working with Spielberg on that thing at the beginning, that's what blew me away is that he was totally fearless about bringing in. Um, I mean, he knew exactly what, who he wanted and most of the people he wanted to do the visual stuff, to do the script, to do, you know, everything except direct it. Um, we're all young people. I and mean, he knew exactly who he wanted to bring in. And that's, I think that's it. He didn't have some sort of autocratic idea about, or, or or it wasn't wrapped up ego wise in controlling every aspect of the thing, you well, know. You can't be Spielberg it's being like that. <laughs> to like, yeah, he's a, smart, he's a fucking smart dude. Yeah, and and he can get the best talent that he wants. Yeah. You know? So yeah. That's, everybody wants works with him. That's his, and I feel like that's part of what his genius is. You know, is that he can go. A, he has access to top talent, and B, he's totally 
he doesn't have an ego whenever it concerns bringing in top talent and letting them do, you know, what they can do. Right? He just wants to play. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, as I watched the development of that and all the all the visual effects and all the, you know, everything they do uh, in um, pre-production, all that sexy stuff. How uh, crazy was that to see? So you're sitting there. You're you have the original idea to make this book that comes from all this education that you had and your life in general, all these books that you read. You go out there and you fucking put the book together and it goes and gets success and then it lands on Steven's desk and he likes it and he wants to be a part of it and then you join in with him. And then you're watching this whole thing transform through his eyes, through all this talent. I mean, what the fuck? How cool is that? Yeah, it's amazing. Actually, you know, lucky man, not yeah. lucky that there's no. Sorry, I hate saying yeah. that, but that's it's really awesome to have that experience. I can't imagine how cool that must have felt like and it, feel it, like. So, I mean, yeah, and I was incredibly like beyond lucky to to even be in that situation or or to still be in it. I guess. I mean, right now, I don't think that Robo Apocalypse is the next thing Spielberg's going to direct, but it's on his list. It's not dead. He still talks about it. But I just recently started writing. Um, comics for DC and that's the only comparable experience really is um, writing a comic book or scripting a comic and then seeing the final comic book you know and recognizing all the elements of what you were because you see of course the dialogue is whatever you wrote and, and all the main strokes or whatever you wrote you know but you can see the artist does is is an active participant creatively you know absolutely so they're running with um, with their own ideas, and you can see it simultaneously sort of what you thought, what you imagined, and then also what's there. And so, you know, for me, like Chris Hemsworth signed on to be Cormac um, in Robopocalypse. And so I had already, I already know what Cormac looks like. I wrote him. Like, I, I know this guy in my head. And then now there's this, it's sort of like the artist has drawn him in the form of Chris Hemsworth. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, so that's what, you know, and it's weird because it gets all mixed up in your head and you can't remember <laughs> you thought of and what, it's really hard to go back. It's like, again, like peeing in the pool, right? Like, sure, you got to be cautious Hemsworth too. Hemsworth yeah. now part of my idea of what Cormac looks like. You know, whether Chris stays attached to the film or not, I mean, I don't know what's going on with the film, but um you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to see that stuff that you think of in your head come to life, you know, um, in the form of an actor or in the form of, of a drawing or, or whatever. Absolutely. I can't imagine. I remember being on the set um, in New Orleans when we were making Ender's Game. Uh, I was out there a couple of times and it was crazy because the author, I forget his name. Orson see. Scott Card? That's that's his name, yeah. I was looking right at the book right now. Yeah, Orson Scott Card, he w- came out there a couple of times. And I knew that he, from just from word of mouth that he was having a hard time with letting go of this thing and letting it be applied to film. I think he had been... There had been a lot of try, tries from different filmmakers to do it, but the zero G and there was all these things, you know, to make it happen. Uh-huh. But it was... It was crazy watching him because I just like you know I was watching everything and I was it's crazy watching him watching the stage and all these things come up and the formic base on Endor or whatever the freaking planet was and all these things it was so cool to see his curiosity his amazement and his like kind of like 
you know, he was like kind of judging and, and questioning things and wondering and all these things, you know, it was just, it was really cool. It was, it was really interesting, you know, it's, it's, uh, as a writer of these things, and I've heard from many times from many people is that you write this thing, it's your baby and it goes off into the universe and people take it and then they kind of go like, Hey, fuck off. And then they just take that and they go, you know? And yeah. rec- recently, like a really cool thing I just recently read was it was Fincher's new film, Gone Girl, which is from that novel. I forget the lady that wrote it. But he was saying that usually what they'll do, even like with Fight Club, even with Chuck's book, they, <laughs> they brought in a screenwriter to adapt it to film because it's a whole different process, right? Writing a book and writing a film is a completely what? different thing. But um, they with Gone Girl, they said, uh, I think Fincher said, yeah, let's give her a stab. Let's let her try it because there's a lot of internal dialogue in that mo- in that book that is really important to the story and see if she can pull it off. And apparently she did. And then they just continued working on it because she figured it out. But that's not always the case. A lot of times people are just like, you know, well, what's, your, what's your feel on that? Because a lot of times I feel like a writer or original creator sometimes people will go, okay, you, you gave me this gem. Now I'm going to change it and make it my own. And yeah. I guess it's per situation, but have you had that experience? Sure, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it depends on um, what kind of, it depends on what you do all day. You know, so if you're a novelist, strictly a novelist, and you write novels, period, then you have, I think, you end up having your books feel more like your babies, your identity is wrapped up in them. Yeah. Um, if you have made a shitload of money, like Orson Scott Card has, <laughs> you can become much more picky, right? Sure. If Orson Scott Card had you know, never been able to make millions and millions of dollars selling millions of copies of Ender's Game, I guarantee you he wouldn't be as much of a picky. You know, he wouldn't as, have enough power, yeah. Well, he just would feel grateful that anyone gave a shit enough about his book <laughs> to turn it into a movie in the first place. <laughs> yeah, he exactly. that sense of entitlement about feeling like he's going to go control something he knows nothing about because making a film and making a novel are, are oil, oil and water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. For me, I, I write novels. I write novellas, short stories, uh, comic books, screenplays, you know, full on graphic novels. I write interactive fiction in the form of video games. Like I will write anything that anyone will pay me to write. You know? <laughs> And nonfiction too. I've written nonfiction, tons of journalism, tons of stuff for like Wired and Popular Mechanics and everything. So I mean, I just love writing. Period. You know, and for me, I feel like the medium is a prism. You know, mm. but there is that white light. You know, there's there's, and I I consider that really to just be the high concept. Like, what are you trying to communicate? You know, and so like Robo Apocalypse, it's like a robot war. Okay, well, that could be a novel. That could be anything right it could come out in any medium and so you know for me i feel like there's that high concept i translated it into a novel um someone else is going to translate it into you know a film or whatever i have no expectation that they should be the same right yeah except that they should convey whatever that high concept is and that's not very risky i mean people are gonna try to convey that high concept because that's what they pay you for right i mean they're not buying Robopocalypse because they, you know, for fun or anything, they're, they're spending a lot of money in order to get that high concept, you know, so that they can convey that in, in their own medium where, you know, where DreamWorks, where they're the experts, you know. Sure, so, in, in their own passage and stuff. It's like, I like think, go ahead, sorry. sorry. Well, I think because I write in a lot of different formats, you know, mm. uh, 
Which, by the way, I do that because of a deep underlying fear that I'm going to have one really shitty book and then no one will ever let me write another. <laughs> you have a family to help talking. with, you know, too. So, I mean, it's like spreading it out, you know, so that I can... <laughs> redundancy you know um get miles though it's good miles you know it's scary to be a freelancer you know you know the next paycheck's coming but (laughs) especially if you have a family and everything well i really want to talk about that later on the conversation but sorry continue uh yeah so that's all i was saying it's just that um because i think i write in a lot of different mediums already i'm not as precious about um my novels you know that's good i mean it's good to know that i think that's really that's a more of a humble approach of wanting to make sure that that high contrast idea is there. You know, like even with Philip K. Dick's like uh, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and then how that was adapted to Blade Runner. I mean, yeah, what? That's not the same thing. I mean, everybody's always like acting like that's the same thing. That movie has very fucking little to do with that book <laughs> or that short story or whatever. I haven't, um, I haven't read that story in a long time. The short story is all about uh, people competing to buy animals that are really robots that the animals look really realistic like real animals but like that's like the currency and it's about pollution it's about all kinds of shit that's not hunting androids yeah that's kind of like there's maybe some of the ingredients but it's completely changed into another dish but you've got to be happy when somebody takes something like that and does something amazing i mean there's sort of two dimensions right there's two axes one is are they going to stick to the idea that you came up with, you know, so it's recognizable? And and the other axis is quality. Are they going to do a good job? I mean, they could like slavishly copy every detail and make a shitty movie and sure. wish that they would have done something different. Um, and the quality decision is you you get one opportunity as as the author as the of the original material to make a quality decision, and that's who you sell it to, and then you're done. Like. Because you have power, you can choose not to sell it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you can choose, if multiple people want to buy it, you can choose who to sell it to. Bidding war, yeah. And then you're done, and then you're <laughs> done, and then they're going to make their movie, and you have no more control. You can go to the set, you can, you know, get guarantees written into your contract. But that, but the major decision is who you sell it to, and whether you trust them to make a quality film. And after that, you know, it's in their hands. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just be positive and trying to just keep going with it. Is there ever been a, I, there's ever, has there ever been something in you to go and try to take it to the next level with trying to direct something? Or do you like to stick with, yeah. is, is writing, is does writing seal the deal for you and keep you, you know, occupied and happy? Writing is fine with me. Uh, technical advising, since I have some technical knowledge about the machinery and things like that. I mean, so I'm involved. I mean, look, I've never had a book go through production and be turned into a full-length film. I have a short story called The Nostalgist. That is a fucking amazing short film now. Um, and the trailer is available on io9.com and around. If you Google The Nostalgist, you can see the trailer. Uh, I mean, that's my only experience going through production and that was amazing and they did an amazing job and I, I kind of knew they would. Um, that's Giacomo Cimini, the, uh, the director who, who did that project, kind of an up and coming guy. Killer. Um, but like, you know, that's even so I've optioned the rights to like lots of projects and I've set up projects where I work together with the director, as you know, like with Anthony. Yeah. And it's like choosing the people is the main thing, you know, like yeah. who's going to work on it. And, and then you just have to let it go. Well, you want a really cool person to work with. You know, if you don't have a cool person, 
to it's <laughs> you're literally marrying people you know like you're <laughs> you're marrying into a relationship with these people that can be strenuous and taxing and and very involving and and, and it's very key to to surround yourself with good people positive people problem solvers you know people that are are talented and humble um what do you what do you seek out when you find good collaborators what what's a couple traits that you really look for uh there's only one trait really that i look for aside from just making sure that they that we have the same sensibility you know mm-hmm. um and that's just passion do they yeah. give it yeah they call you back? are they thinking <laughs> about it you know like are their wheels turning like that's the main thing that's how i chose a, a literary agent that's how i ch- that's how i choose the people in my life that i work with is just are they passionate you know yeah, yeah. more than anything really indicates you know, it can be like a real high-level person who's got lots of power, but they have too many projects and they don't really care that much, you know, and you're just sort of like going to get hip-pocketed or whatever. Fuck that. You know, I'd rather have an up-and-comer who really gives a shit and really wants to do something amazing. Um, and I would always choose that person to work with, you know. Yeah, just I couldn't agree more. More likely to get done. I mean, <laughs> Start looking at this. I mean, like a film... A lot of these projects, especially writing novels and films, they take years, you know? So it's like I'm 36. I've been doing this since I was 25. And it's like, how many more novels am I going to get before I die? How many <laughs> potential films? You know, yeah. if a film takes five or 10 years, then, you know, what am I looking at, right? <laughs> it's like, did you see that thing I posted up? I don't know if I sent it to you. The, the, the year or the weeks of your life in your little boxes. My friend, my friend Vitaly sent me this fucking, I'll send it to you. It's, it's your, it's your life through 90 years or 95 years or something, but it's these, each box is each week of of your life and you fill in each week (laughs) and you could see how much time you've used up basically of a possibility because, you know, some people, it was funny the people's reactions to this because I posted it up on like Twitter and and my Facebook and some people were like, oh, this is horrible, ah, you know, (laughs) and some people were like, fuck yeah, it's time to work. And I was like, Everybody that said, fuck yeah, it's time to work. I'm like, I fucking love you because you're on my team. It's awesome because you look at it and you go, I'm on borrowed time here and I better fucking earn this week. That's what I love about Vitaly, the guy that sent it to me. I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with his work, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love his stuff. He's, he's, he's just such an awesome dude. He's a great person and he, talk about passion. I mean, same with Anthony. And it's great that you guys are working together because, yeah, there's very few people that have the passion and drive than Anthony. That's why we're like best friends because we really understand what it is to be passionate and what it is to do work and, and, and to kick ass, you know, like just put in, you know, 20 hour days if you have to, just because that's what it takes to get things done, you know? So, but that's true. That's a really good perspective. And anybody listening that, you know, is hearing this is people that really want to collaborate on a higher level. Like you need to be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about something, then you've got to really question, what am I doing? You know? Why am I doing this? You know, and be be Other aware of it. Smell it. I'll, I'll tell you that. You know, that's actually true. It's a two way street. If you're really passionate, people can smell that, and it give it takes you places. Like, I mean, if you're just excited, and it's something that's hard to fake. You know. Yeah. Like, uh, and so I think that's why people are drawn to that. I mean, I know. I feel like, especially when you're young too. Like, I've made it a large distance just on passion alone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just being just really honestly, uh, genuinely excited about shit. 
Yeah, you have to. You really have to, you know? Like well, if you- see, the thing is, if you feel like you have to and you're not, then you're in trouble. It's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, you can't decide you're going to be passionate about something. Oh, no. Well, it just comes, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, um, like you mentioned being kind of insular and reading books and kind of being in those realm. Like, I remember that same thing happening to me at a young age, too. And it's just that's all I wanted to do sometimes. Like I just want to read a fucking book because this book is so cool. Like my imagination, my mind, it's functioning on another level, you know, and like, it's taking me to this next world. And I remember like being obsessed with all J.R. Tolkien's books. I, I, I was like 12 years old or something. I can't, 12, 13, I don't know, but I read all his shit towards the end. It kind of, I was like, okay, this is getting too long. The Hobbit's obviously my favorite, but just getting super into that, that passion, I suppose, that staying up late and really focusing on, you know, those things. I don't know. I, I guess, do what is it, a calling? What do you think it is? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that's entertainment, right? I mean, whenever you get crazy wrapped up in books or a television show or something, somebody made that and their goal when they made it was to make you want to experience it, you know? I read more. So part of that is... You know, it's not a calling. So, I, I mean, this is something that I kind of think about when I'm at a place like Comic-Con or a place where everybody, where there's lots of people who are fans, you know, like I'm yeah. a fan of lots of stuff, but I also feel like I create stuff. And so, you know, there's sort of a difference between knowing everything that somebody else created and then like creating something. Sure. You know? Like there's a difference between memorizing every nuance of, of a comic book line <laughs> yeah. and like actually learning math. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, and so I, so I don't know, sometimes I get a little depressed about that, you know, because I feel like, yeah, okay. I love this stuff. I've read it, you know, a million times. Like I'm totally a huge fan, but that by itself, I don't feel like is any sort of badge of honor, right? <laughs> it's fairly weird when fans. It's weird, right? There's this weird thing that happens. Like of ownership over. Yeah, it. like that's the, false. Really, it's a false feeling because just <laughs> know it better than other people doesn't mean you created it or that you're capable of creating something like it. You know, because they invest that time, they feel like they do own it. That's what's really weird, you know. Like this, the whole thing with like George Lucas, you know, like. I kind mm-hmm. of feel bad for him because, well, I mean, I don't know if I feel bad for him, but <laughs> he created this crazy fucking monumental experience for the, a generation, basically. And they felt that they were entitled to own it, you know? And like, but yeah. then he didn't, you know, he, he, he went through and he, nobody, he was that perfect case where he was just making what he wanted to. He, nobody questioned him because he ran the show. And, he didn't have those ingredients that he once had. And, yeah. you know, like Empire is always the best one for me and everybody else, too, that really loves Star Wars. Like Empire is the best <laughs> one. That's the one he didn't direct, you know? Yeah. And one of my favorite stories of his is Indiana Jones, you know? He didn't direct that either, you know? Yeah. So, and not to say, I mean, too, I, I, you know, my childhood would not have been the same without his, 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 his creations. Like, I'm... I'm so stoked that he's is alive and he pushed forward to make his awesome things happen. This saga, his space saga. But yeah, there's this weird thing. I noticed it at Comic-Con too. There's this one thing that was really fucking annoying the shit out of me. Is uh, <laughs> And I, I feel bad if anybody's listening that's into this. It's not necessarily all the cosplay thing, but there's this weird thing that happens there 
where people do the cosplay thing and it's and i'm like okay cool like you're a super fan like you make out like you go and you spend a lot of time and make a costume and that's rad you're creative and you're just like you're really inspired by somebody saying and you're going out there and doing it that's awesome but what was happening to me while i was trying to walk through the aisle and actually look at like creators and talk with them and stuff as there was this one year, this particular woman, she was wearing this like crazy dress ornate thing and it took up the whole fucking hall, like the whole alley. And she would just go, she would just do circles and be like, ah, ah, and like everybody was around her and like taking pictures and I'm like, fuck off, man. Like this isn't your show. Like this is a show to show other artists. But I guess people are more into that than the artists. Uh, I don't know. So I guess I it's, I agree with you on that one. And also, yeah, please I'm, yeah, tell me why. Cause I'm like, for me, I'm, I was annoyed. Well, I mean, costume designing is on its own an art form, and it's sure. something you can get really good at. And and it and I I would argue that that's not that's a step up from just fandom in terms of memorizing everything or or just reading it again and again. Because now you've stopped and you've gotten creative, right? I mean, to actually create make a physical incarnation of like uh, a costume that you've only seen or read about, like. That is a creative endeavor. Like, if you made an artifact that you put on and it was amazing, like, I feel like that's something definitely to be proud of. Um, you've like engaged your creative uh, brain, you know, it's as true. opposed to just the passive experience of reading something again and again or watching it again and again and not, you know, like not doing anything necessarily creative about it um, or you, or having it spur anything creative, you know, even just a conversation or, or something, you know, which I think is is definitely something that people get out of get out of you know fandom and reading and 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 watching and everything. But no, and plus you're going to get in trouble with people that make costumes because <laughs> yeah, they don't think you're <laughs> not allowed to. Or some I feel like what whatever. I just said is, was will be something that people agree with out there. Sure. Who, make costumes sure and like so i want to make it clear maybe it was what was happening for me is that i didn't give a shit about the costume because i didn't care (laughs) and i just wanted to look at other things and it kept getting in the way and and anybody that goes to comic-con you got to be cautious for me at least like i want to just start if i don't take a break or breathe or really like relax my senses like i get kind of crazy in my mind yeah because i have a hard time I don't know. It's weird as the older I get, maybe because I've been working at home and I've been so like kind of away from a lot of crowds and stuff, but the older I, the older I get, I have a harder time with like lots of people and that energy unless I'm really embracing it. I have to just kind of submit to it. But I, no, Comic-Con is, is just, I think it does that to everybody. It it's sucks. fucking madness. Yeah. It's, I remember going when there was like hardly anybody there. It was like a little small area and, um, I mean, it was a small section of the, of the convention, but but no, I think I guess there's like there's that whole thing with like fan fiction and stuff as well, which is kind of cool, but it's interesting, you know. And I guess the next step from fan fiction, like I had a friend of mine who was writing this Batman thing, and I was like, cool, man, that's rad. Like, you know, write your own Batman. Like, what, you know, why why wouldn't you? If you love Batman, do it. And then I and then I was like, but also be aware of writing your own shit. I have to, I have my yeah. wife I have my wife to thank again for a lot of this stuff because. I had the opportunity of doing something and I was just going to draw a Punisher thing uh, for this magazine. She was like, ah, that's weak. Don't be fucking drawing <laughs> some shit. And I was like, ah, oh, God, like you're so hard on me. <laughs> but then that's when Lost Boy got created. It was from her talking shit to me and like making me make something else of my own. And from that transition, that was when I created that. And then it's just a culmination of everything I love. 
but I think that transition is is key, you know, from yeah. going from a fan to that. And and I think your observation of just being somebody that like knows how to speak Trekkie and like and watches all the films, like yeah, I don't know, like you're just like a fan, but you're not a content creator, you know. Yeah. But some people do; they transition into that, but not everybody has that, I guess. You know, they get kind of stuck in that loophole, or it's just yeah, yeah. It's very well, interesting. It's a scary loophole, though. You know. Speaking of uh, content creation, I'm gonna have to be creating some content here <laughs> pretty soon. Okay, um, we can jump off. Oh, okay. Um, just yeah, I'm, I just gotta get back to it before I gotta go pick up my kids from school. <laughs> how much time? How much time you got? We'll make sure we. we I have a couple questions I wanted to make sure I got in here before we before we jump. Oh yeah, out. just another ten minutes or something or something would be fine. I mean, if that's okay. okay with you. Perfect, man. Yeah. Well, any time that you're able to offer is great. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about like your your daily day, like your your how do you keep that rhythm? Because you know you got the kids, you got the freelance thing. Um, I know a lot of people that are friends of mine or that listen to this show are curious about the freelance thing. I've been doing freelance for like three and a half years. How do you manage to balance it? Do you have help? Do you have like a manager? What's your, you know, like what's your day to day? So uh, tons so, of questions. Answer them all now correctly. Yeah. <laughs> my day to day experience is, um, you know, I, I wake up and help get the kids ready and get them out. And then I go to the coffee shop um, and I write for two or three hours there. I come home and eat lunch. And then, uh, then in the afternoon, I either, go drink more tea and coffee or <laughs> go get started drinking beer uh, <laughs> like around you know like three or something uh or i'll go to the i have a bar i like to go to and i'll go and uh drink lemonade until three and then start writing um i get until some Girl, days, look at this puss with the laptop and the lemonade over there <laughs> yeah they love me i mean you know, <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just imagining like a rough guy bar and you in the corner writing. <laughs> the bar I go to, they're sweet. They, I mean, there there is a whole. By the way, I mean, there is a whole ecosystem at a at a bar in the daytime with a lot of alcoholics that I'm sort of like, I'm like, oh, here I come, guys. <laughs> it's mostly uh, older folks, you know, that are there sure. every day drinking the same drink. I mean, they pour them stiff at the place where I go, and uh, so yeah, I'm on my way, but. You know, I, I find that I get in the mornings, I, I do my real work. Like in two hours is really all I have in terms of like really breaking story, like f- fucking figuring out what's going to happen, right? Yeah, you, you work <laughs> which, in two-hour cycles. what I do. That's what I do all day, every day is I figure out what happens next. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then writing it down. So if I'm writing a novel, that's whenever I put down idea, a thousand words or, uh, you know, if I can, you know, hmm. 500 minimum, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, if I'm writing comic books, that's whenever I break story. Uh, and then I, and I find I can script. I don't, scripting is not as creative actually for me as, as actually breaking the story. And, and by breaking the story, I mean, again, figuring out what happens next, right? Um, literally where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Why is it going to be emotional? Like what's going to be the action? All of that. Do you write an outline and then dig in deeper and refine? The way I've been writing for DC is I'm, um, I have two other writers that I'm working with and I, I break two issues page by page. I describe what happens on every page and I assign the page to a writer, including to myself. 
and I usually write about half of each issue. There's 20 pages in an issue. Uh, this is my sorry. I should have mentioned this a million years ago. I'm writing uh, a weekly called Earth Two Worlds End, and it continues the Earth Two saga, okay. uh, which has been a monthly written by Tom Taylor most recently. Uh, and I've also got Huntress and Power Girl, so it's sort of like World's Finest is is all combined into it, uh, and and it's fucking epic. Basically, it's all DC stuff. All DC, yeah. It's the only comics I've really written. I've done a little Zombies versus Robots for IDW, but but that's it. So, um, how yeah, was it working with IDW? You know, I, I worked with Sam Keith was my uh, artist, and I worked oh, with Chris Sam is Rock. rad. Yeah, I know, but but it was I was hard. I didn't ever communicate with Sam. And so it was like a communication breakdown and and like, it was just a good lesson on like, you know, you just gotta, you gotta engage with people. Yeah. You have to be right on with it. Yeah. Do that. You know, when I'm writing a novel, I'm by myself. And so I was kind of, that was my first, first, first experience. Um, but yeah, so earth two is going to be coming out like October 8th or something. And then it's going to be every week for six months. Wow. Every week, 20 page. 20 page, well, the first issue is 38. It's a double issue for the same price. And the last issue, I just got approval to make it a double issue too. Dope. So it's essentially 28 issues, 28 times 20 minus four. That's what it, let me, actually, I wonder what that is. 28 times 20. Do the math, sir. It's 556 pages of comic book, baby. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. <laughs> you guys are going to do a fat uh, combination book at the end oh, of that. Man. So much shit happens. <laughs> That's rad. And how do you keep yourself focused on that? Like when you write, because I mean, I, I don't know. I look at writing the way I approach it, and I'm not a writer, but the way I approach it is in little bites, and I write an outline that keeps me intrigued. Yeah. All the actions, and then I start elaborating on each little thing exactly. and refining. Have, because I break down each beat, I have basically an outline, and so then the writers, you know, the writers are creative too. I mean, they're they've reallocate the pages and you know i mean they like if something i've done doesn't make any goddamn sense then they'll they'll fix it you know thank god (laughs) um and then of course there's lots of editors i mean it's there's a whole there's a lot of people involved in a comic you know and then you get your art and you get your lettering and then you even got to check it after the coloring you know because sometimes they'll get i had a couple of uh basically clones that got their costumes the colored backwards in my very first uh, issue that I wrote and it was just like ah crap you know <laughs> because I have to check every stage you know sure. you it's the onus is on you as the as the uh, story person or and under as the writer uh, but yeah I mean that that has been amazing and 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 really you have to keep on top of it I mean because it's a weekly so it's a lot of pages and let me just off the top of my head throw out which characters we're dealing with okay. I have like exhaustive knowledge of all the Earth Two versions of, of let's see, there's Mister Miracle, Fury, and Barda. There's Michael Holt, aka Mister Terrific. There's Terry Sloan, who I've renamed the Traveler. There's of course Power Girl and Huntress. There's Batman, who's really Thomas Wayne, Batman's dad. There's Val Zod, the Black Batman. There is, um, I mean, sorry, the su- Superman. And then um, there is, uh, we've got Aqua Woman, of course, Queen Morella. Um, we've got Flash and Hawk Girl. There's um, Captain Steel, uh, Sandman. You know Wesley Dodds, Commander. Con- I mean, it's like what the shit. There must be a hundred of them. I don't. I mean, and I've got to get them all in there because everybody loves different characters. You know, obviously. The, oh, Green Lantern. You know, and 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 we're creating new characters. So that's just been 
really bananas, a, a really like a creative fest, you know, just mentally just going through everything that could happen. But yeah, because you could write an amazing point. story, uh, uh, 500 to 1,000 pages on just one character if you really dug in, you know? You can't. That's the other thing. It's super economical. You know, you want to have splash pages. You want to have three-panel pages. You, I want very few six-panel pages, and I want, I want very little dialogue either because I know when I read a comic, if there's just too much... Uh, that's not the medium, you know. I don't. I'm not opening it up. I'm looking at the artwork and I'm following. The plot. <laughs> I don't want to read like a whole diatribe, you know. Yeah, like, it's it's a fine balance between the two. I really, really I found you know like sometimes, even like Sin City is interesting to study because he has some pages where there it's like a couple pages in a book, and then then he has just a bunch of just imagery, you know. So it's, novels tend to have more dialogue, I've noticed, you know, and yes. more panels, and they're more creative about how they use paneling and they're trying to say a lot more too. I feel too, you know, but yeah. it's, it, I guess it depends, you know. I'm writing a graphic novel for DC right now. Killer. It's interesting because I'm sticking to comic book style, you know, mm, with the graphic novel. So you're writing it kind of like a twenty page. It's 144 pages, but I'm writing it in five acts, and mm. they're each, um, you know, they're each roughly about as long as a comic book. And but what I'm saying is, I'm not doing. I, also, I'm not the artist, so a lot of that stuff you see the artist and the writer are the same person, you know, or or it's a team that's worked together a lot, and so they'll do more creative stuff visually. Yeah, um, I'm not doing that. I'm I'm sticking to my story and writing it, um, and and I'm working with an awesome artist, but I've never worked with them before. It's always so. interesting, you know, like it's always that thing. And if that person's passionate enough, you know, if they return your calls or they send you text messages at <laughs> well, two o'clock okay. in the morning and super pumped that DC, you know, hired him for this gig and everything. So DC <laughs> seems like a company that gets it, you know, like I well, know that money and they, ha they've been around a long time and they know everybody in the industry and they've all gone back and forth between Marvel and DC. Like sure. Sure. You know, it's yeah, no, I mean, they're in the game. I mean, obviously Marvel right now is really dominant. Um, and you know, they, these companies, they do kind of buy writers. I mean, they'll, I, I'm not under any type of contract like this, but writers will sign contracts that are exclusive to, you know, Marvel or something and they won't, and they won't write for other companies. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you see the awards, you know, that they give to the comic book writers, it'll say what company they write for, which I think is kind of funny because aren't we all freelance? Like, <laughs> most yeah, well, unless you are signed into that company, right? Yeah. Why do you not do the contract? Because I, I would, I probably have the same reason. Well, nobody's but Nobody's tried to button me up with one. I haven't had to make that decision. Um, do you, if somebody did, would you be exclusive? Yeah, it would all depend on the project, you know I mean? Like, sure. I don't want to... I love writing comics. I have discovered that I really like it, and I'm and I think I'm pretty good at it for just starting. It's, it's really complicated. It's not that easy, but you know I've worked really hard to try to learn from the people I'm working with who are amazing. You know, DC's that's been another advantage is they've been able to introduce me to a lot of like really amazing people, and I've been able to try it as hard as I can just to learn like an iota of you know what they know and just listen to what they say, but. Um, I don't want to do it full time necessarily, you know. I also sure. like to write novels, and I'm I'm able to have these other careers, you know. Try to try to have my cake and eat it too, right? Probably I think not. that's really important, you know. I think it's important to have multiple things as a creative person because you can burn yourself out if you just focus on one. One thing I learned that recently that Anthony told me 
from a book that he's reading about Stephen King's process is that Stephen will write something when he's really passionate about it. He'll come up with all these things. And then once that burns out, he'll put it away and start working on something else. And before you know, it, he has like 10 stories and he just comes back to that one later and goes, Oh yeah, oh, I could fix this and add this thing to it. And that's why a lot of his stories all connect, you know, they're, they're all kind of similar universe. I, yeah. I haven't read that book yet, but I, I also do that, that same thing. I mean, uh, I'll start writing a novel and then later realize that it's a short story or a graphic novel or something. And it's and a lot of it, again, it's like I'm talking about that prism that separates a story into whatever medium it's meant for, you know? Sure. And like, you know, but the story idea, the, the pure story, the white light, like that, um, that's what you write when you're passionate, you know? You just get those those big ideas down and the, like get the nuts and bolts of it out there. And yeah. then you're... Yeah, later you can polish it up and you can get passionate about it again. Absolutely. Um, with a novel, though, I feel like I have to do it beginning to end. Because if you lose the thread of a novel, or I would never try to put down Earth 2 and pick it up later. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> so many mental balls that I'm juggling, you know. like Sure, the concentration. You have to have that consistent concentration. How do you deal with that, though? Like, don't you get burnt out? Like, you're, you know, maybe you're midway through it. Or do you just kind of consistently build in a world that, like, you enjoy and kind of... Well, Make it so it's an enjoyable process. Like writer's time. block and shit like that. Like how do you fight that crap? Stephen King's rich as shit, man. If he decides <laughs> he want to write a novel, he can put it down and go fucking buy a yacht, you know? <laughs> but like, you know, I got to make money, right? It's and obvious he loves writing though because he continually do, does it, you know? Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, and he's a G- I mean, come on. If, if you're really good at something, like are you not going to do it? <laughs> yeah, true. His sons are also great writers. I mean, Yeah, I've really enjoyed the... The genetics of those guys. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, you know, when you really have to write, and, and different mediums have different requirements, you know, novel writing is the loosest. You can just put your novel down and tell your publishing company, ah, fuck, man, I'm not feeling it. Call me in a year, right? And there's a good chance you'll get away with that. Sure. Um, comic books? No way. Like, I, <laughs> I, turning it in on time is a major component of being able to do that job. Yeah. And, uh, and so that means figuring out a rhythm, and it means, like, it means working whenever you don't feel like it. Yeah. You know? and, like, and, and everything else. And, and I think that that really applies. I mean, sure, it's great to write something when you're passionate about it and then put it down and come back later. Yeah. Um, but in the real world, a lot of times you just you can't afford to do that. You just have to keep uh, pounding away at it, you know, until you're finished. Yeah. Forcing it out basically, but figuring out a good rhythm. I think you said it perfectly, like finding your rhythm, your creative flow yeah. and, and utilizing that to your day's advantage. You, you said you work in two hour cycles at least. Well, I find the same do thing. Multiple things, yes. you know, do one type of work in the morning and then a different type in the afternoon or one project in the morning. And I usually do two different projects in the morning and another one in the afternoon. And then that way you keep your brain fresh. You're not like it's like exercising. You're not using the same muscle group all day long, you know. Yes. Yeah. Or you'll you know you'll strain yourself out. It's the same with the creative self, dude. Hell yeah. This has been a great talk. I really appreciate you coming yeah, on. Yeah, man. I didn't. I, yeah. If you ever want to come on anytime, and I'm looking forward to collaborating with you and Anthony. It's going to be a lot of fun. And congratulations and all that stuff. I know that's. All a work in progress as everything else is, but yeah, maybe we can talk more about that Anthony project soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that and everything else with like you know working with DreamWorks and Steven and everybody there and and, and all your accolades and everything. It's it's awesome and con- congratulations and you know yeah, it's just really cool. It's good to be able to get to know you a little bit better in your process too. It's just 
um, I don't know. I'm always curious about it. So it's really cool to understand like how you work and stuff. So thanks, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Chatting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Wilson PDX. Yes. Everybody hit him up. We'll have your Twitter. Um, anything that you want us to have for sure on the, the blog, uh, the post, uh, the, the podcast link, just let us know. But yeah, your yeah, Twitter, Twitter and maybe, you know, I have a website at danielhwilson.com, but that's about it. Yeah. On your, on your website, you have like, just kind of like up to date news and just things that you've been, um, associated with and stuff. Right. Yeah. And I got a little, I got my little cousin going to update my website. I'm too cheap to, to <laughs> pay a do so it. that'll look better soon <laughs> we have a sponsor for the podcast called it's a service called squarespace have you heard of that no uh-uh. it's really awesome it's super easy to use and i've recommended it to a lot of friends that don't want to waste time on website stuff or spend because it's a bitch dude website <laughs> stuff is the worst and uh it's it's incredibly easy to use we actually the website for the podcast is made um, it's customized obviously, but it's made with Squarespace by using Squarespace, which is great. But if you are curious about that, like you can, there's all kinds of really great templates and formats and stuff. I always plug it, but it's like a shameless plug, but it's, it's, it's honestly a really great service. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it up unless I think it would help. So yeah, it's, it's a really awesome, awesome thing. And it would probably be good for you to have. So you can just have like a, you know, just like, oh, this is what I'm into right now. Or this is some shit that's happening right now. Like you already do it now. So, but yeah, for everybody that's listening, we'll have all those up and all the links to your books and stuff too. And yeah, check them cool. out. They're, they're really cool. And it's, it's, it's cool to see where you're going with all this stuff and in the comics and the things that you're going to do with Anthony. I'm just, it's going to be really fun and see how this all kind of changes and transpires and builds and develops, you know, so lots of work ahead. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fun though. Yes. Tons of fun. Tons and tons of fun. But, dude, have a great day and thank you again. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. All right, man. Take it easy. All right, buddy. Thank you. Ciao.